Okay, this is Sergey Ross Growth Podcast, episode number 26. I caught up with Marcus Rader, who is the founder and CEO of a company called Hostaway, a technology company that provides software for vacation property managers. Marcus is a passionate traveler. He has over 10 years of experience in online marketing, a ton of startups. He's originally from Finland, and he's on the mission right now to help Airbnb hosts improve their businesses. He shares a ton of cool insights and his perspective is very different from folks who live in North America because he is from Finland. So here's Marcus. Hey everyone, I'm here with Marcus Rader. Marcus, excited to have you here on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Well, tell me, tell me a little bit about your, since you're from Finland, tell me about the Sisu concept. The Sisu concept is uh, something that, uh, as a stereotype, Finnish companies tend to have it as a company value. And we we put in a lot of thoughts last year into what our values should be, because we, we found out that we actually have values here. We have just never written them down. And uh, and Sisu uh, stood out as, uh, as one of them. I don't know really when the term was... Uh, was invented or what it actually means. Uh, perseverance or grit are, are terms that are, are used in English. Um, but um, it's often, yeah, often referred to uh, with the winter war where it was minus 40 degrees outside and Russia was invading Finland and they had 10 times more soldiers and tanks and everything and somehow Finland won by... Um, for example, inventing Molotov cocktails, which are great for taking out it tanks. It was such a story. Oh, my God, I love it. I was, I'm was i a history buff. I read this story. I studied it. It was extraordinary what you guys did there. Uh, 1938, I believe. Or yeah, yeah, it, it sure was. And it, it shaped the society that Finland is today. And, and, of course, after that, we got the Second World War, and then we had 30 years of extreme poverty. But, um, but what CISO means to me is that when someone presents an idea or, or a challenge where the default outcome is that it's impossible, it's that you grab the bull by the horns. Mm-hmm. Well, just because it's impossible doesn't mean that we should just give up. And um, that's something that's, that's quite rare because when you, when you recruit, most of the people on this, uh, this planet, they... they they, uh, they follow the expression, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. And for, for a small startup, that simply sometimes isn't good enough because anyone can make lemonade. You're not going to be competitive with that. What you need is, uh, is a certain amount of people who can take that challenge and acknowledge that, yes, this is impossible, and yes, I will get it done. And what I've heard uh, when I looked up the Sisu concept is that it said that Finnish people, they will set a goal and they won't give up until it's done. So they won't, they won't, they won't take weekend or they won't give up halfway. Uh, they won't make excuses, but they will go and get this done. Yeah, it's uh, not, a, not so much about not giving up. It's more about not getting distracted. Because uh, what often happens in companies is you have projects that are very important and they have to be done. And then other projects which are even more important come along and then you have an emergency and then a key staff member leaves and then uh, some customer is upset and you need to remember that project that was so important. It needs to be finished just because there's other things doesn't mean that you can let go of that one goal. Right, so the importance of follow through regardless of what happen, what else happens around exactly so tell me about how do you focus what is what is uh, what are some of the things that you do maybe questions you ask to make sure because to, that everything stays on track you're not losing projects you are if, even if maybe employees come and go you're still marching forward with with your company um that's a that's a really good question how to how to stay focused so i'm I'm still at the stage where we have almost 40 employees now. I'm still at the stage where I, I can do most of the jobs and I, I know and have a lot of experience. I, I think in a couple of years from now, I won't be able to do as good as our salespeople, for example. Um, but right now, I still have a, have a good grasp of how to do things in the optimal way, which is not always the best way. Because if you're a one-man show, if you're a one-person company, you can do whatever you want. 
But if you are going to have, let's say, 500 employees, the same methodology may no longer work. Um, so, so what I do is I, I tend to ask a lot of, uh, a lot of questions. Um, I, I observe what's going on. And then a lot of employees find it intimidating because I can ask fairly detailed questions, for example, about some, some feature or about some project or about a, a customer. But I'm not doing it because I'm expecting the right or wrong answers. I'm just doing it to see, do they know what I would like to know about this? And I'm not judging anyone based on that answer. I'm judging myself based on that answer. If our employees don't know what matters to, let's say, our customers or our partners or what our technology can do and what it can't, um, then I have done something wrong, which is why I'm asking these questions. I just want to find out, do they know what I know? And sometimes they don't, and then I, I keep track of that. Well, you like to be hands-on. Um, yes, yes. Um, spoke to a customer last time today, <laughs> yeah. but, um, but then all of that information to some, to some, it may seem like small details and that's not at all what I, what I do. I gather a lot of information. Yeah. It's usually processed, uh, in the weekends or evenings or sometimes sleepless nights. Um, because what a lot of people see are, are symptoms and I, I try to ignore the symptoms and focus on finding the problems mm -hmm. instead so that I can fix them. And sometimes the problems can't be fixed, but usually they can. Mm -hmm. And it just takes time. And the solution may not always be a nice or easy fix, but, uh, but it's there. And that's, that's how I keep track of things. I just want to know, are things going the way I think they should be going? And if they're not, maybe someone else knows better. That has happened many times. That's a wonderful feeling when you're proven wrong and someone else knows better because that's one of the key things with this, uh, this company. And, and also in my past mm -hmm. career has always been, I want the people who work for me to be better than me. Because if they're not, then why am I working with them in the first place? What can I learn from them if they're not better than me? Well, that's, the, that's the, the main point of a CEO, right? You hire people who know more and then they would lead and they will take the their, their leadership, their expertise, and then you would be doing other things to take the company forward. But you mentioned something interesting. You're about around 30 employees right now. You have to take care of a lot of things. Sometimes you go hands-on, problems come up, inevitably they do. How do you... What do you do to not burn out? What else? You have some sleepless night. They all happen. Is there anything that you do that you maybe you shut, shut everything off certain time or anything that you do to make sure you're not doing 24-7 work too, too much? Oh, I can. Sorry, my brain is a bit overwhelmed there. There's a million answers like uh, work, work smarter, not harder. But uh, I, I don't think I've ever been close to, to burning out. This is, this is my, my project, and I'm dedicated to it in the good times and the bad times. I take the challenges as they come. And when things go, go well, that's when I'm, I get bored, you know, if everything just goes along. Mm -hmm. So uh, I actually enjoy challenges. Yeah. So I need to keep myself challenged all the time. So um, that's what gives me the motivation to keep going. And uh, I have now managed to reach a stage where I, I work almost normal hours. Mm -hmm. Of course, all the important decision-making or, or strategic advancements, they come after hours <laughs> when I'm not at the office. Yeah. Um, so it's a bit, bit strange to talk about working hours, but, um, but yeah, I, I do believe in a, in a good work-life, uh, mm -hmm. balance for, for me and all the, all the employees as well. You talked about, you made some really good comments on leadership and you kind of alluded to that in a way that, look, if you're going to hire a sales team, let them lead, let them have certain autonomy. So you wouldn't be jumping in the room and then taking the lead on a sale or closing that sale because you want to, you have to emotionally detach from that and let them lead. And then you focus on something else. So talk, talk to me about how do you see that leadership uh, going with, with your company and maybe some, some thoughts on that. 
that's a that's a very interesting observation that's uh i i have so many projects right now that i know would uh would be really beneficial to our company and i know i have people here who have those ideas but if i push a project then i'm the one who have to follow up on it and i can't follow up on everything but if an employee comes with an initiative that just happens to be one of the million things I know we could do to make a better company, then they are the ones responsible, and I can encourage that. And if we do it that way, um, actually we'll achieve exactly the same results. It will probably be slower, because I can do things immediately, uh, but an employee doesn't have the power. For example, mm -hmm. if, if I want to make a bad decision, I can do that immediately. I probably won't be fired for it. But an employee... If they want to make a, what they know is a bad decision, they probably want some material mm -hmm. to back themselves up in case someone comes and asks, why did you make a bad decision? Um, so I understand that it takes longer, but um, you can't really get to that stage unless you hire the right type of people. And that's really what we're, we're focusing on. And uh, yeah, in the past, we used to always hire the, the best talent. And we found out that that's just not good enough. If you hire for any job the best person available, you're probably going to end up with a... It would be like running a company with Olympic gold medalists. Probably they wouldn't achieve anything together. And talk to me about that because we had a conversation with you on the phone before this interview uh, happened and you had some amazing ideas I thought are so cool. Like it's, I think this is me, an immigrant speaking, uh, about hiring, about finding people who are the right fit and some of your experiences, especially in a marketing side and, and some of the learnings on that. So talk to me about the hiring and, and the challenge of finding the person who is really good versus from the person who might not know something, but they are upfront about that and they, they, they can deliver right now on, on a few areas. Yeah, so um, when, we, when we hire, especially for, for key positions, there's... Uh, well, pretty much as in any business, things can go well or they can go bad. And I need to make sure I have people who are, who are with us in both scenarios. So, for example, a lot of people say they want to join a, a successful growth story. Okay, that's a great motivation, but what if it's not successful? What if it doesn't grow? Then I don't want to be stuck with a bunch of people who are demotivated um, and... Uh, so I, I, expect, uh, I expect a certain degree of honesty because I am very honest. When I, with the right candidate, I will tell them everything. I will not try to paint a rosy picture of any job um, or about the company for that matter. Because even though things in certain areas may look good today and in other areas they may look weak, tomorrow it might be the opposite. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's very important to know. Um, know up front so that you can give the right uh, picture to the to the candidate but one thing specifically that I found is is quite hard when uh, when people aren't up front with what they don't know so quite often they put uh, random items that they are experienced in on the CV and um, and then it turns out they don't know anything about that that's something that we don't usually do in Finland and I don't really get why people would put uh, put Microsoft Excel skills there if they don't know any basic formulas. And, and you know, it's so interesting that uh, you, when we look at the say, the psychology and the best marketing, the usually and, and a lot of people, especially here in North America, are real obsessed of marketing themselves and selling themselves. We just talked about that. The very best marketing usually comes when somebody comes to you and says, "Look, here's where I suck at." And they list all the things before, and then before you think about them, and then you list. Look, I'm I'm terrible at this and this and this, but I'm actually good at this one area. And what it what happens is they really build a strong rapport with you, because well, even if you have certain objections in your in your mind, they probably already listed all of them. Uh, and they could say, look, I don't have experience, I don't have that, but they do have that one thing that's probably going to be helpful for you. So a lot of people are losing out on this powerful marketing because they don't know how it works. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very true. 
but I, I also understand how the job market is competitive. And, uh, but on the other hand, I see this happening mostly with people who are experienced in working or applying for jobs at big companies. Maybe there, the, the checks aren't, aren't so, or let's say the requirements they list are, are too broad. And we, we have for a lot of positions, we list some requirements, but none of them are really that hard. It's more about the attitude of the person and um, being able to work with, in a transparent and uh, trusting fashion. What do you look for? You did mention a lot of like, some things, but what do you look for generally in a candidate when you're hiring? There's a, there's a couple of things. Of course, there's uh, probably a million articles written on what to ask a candidate. Um, one of the things that we, we ask them is um, to, to give a specific example of a failure. Um, because that's, that's what got us here as a company, all the failures, all the mistakes we did. And, and a lot of people go through their career um, without actually experiencing any of that. And that makes it very hard for them to ever work in a startup where, where things change dramatically. And, and you can even sometimes point fingers and say, this was that person's mistake. Because it's, it's a smaller team. Let's say if you're in a company with 10,000 employees and you're running a project with 30 people involved, you can't really blame any, point any fingers anywhere if things go wrong, like if you run out of money or... Mm-hmm. Or something, but if you're in a startup and you you need people who take uh, take that ownership, but uh, we've also seen that if they haven't had any failures in their past, then it's going to be very hard for them to accept failures here. And um, and before we knew this, we, we even hired people, and when they had their first failure, they said, "Okay, I'm, I can't do the job. I quit." And that's that's not what we want because we encourage mistakes and mm-hmm. failures that's mm-hmm. how you learn the, the greatest things but it's not for everyone you need people who who actually can can accept that and uh, and are okay with it yeah i mean i think it's it's such a big part of uh, of a mindset of you know just figuring out a way not to stop and then keep going and then maybe changing your approach because sometimes it, it won't work and you change your approach and then do it again and then it will work in an in maybe another way but it will satisfy the goal what is where do you get that mindset of not stopping and being okay with failure and just keep going? Is it coming from you being from Finland or is it coming from you being an entrepreneur since 11 years old? I, I think it's uh, the book Lean Startup pretty much outlines it. The, the whole idea is that... Uh, you do reiterations, and, and what matters is not the success rate. What matters is not how successful it is. Um, what matters is the speed of iteration. Mm. And we have had pretty much from the, from the beginning the mentality that if we do something, we're going to do it, but we'll put the minimum amount of time into it. Maybe not the minimum effort, but the minimum time, because... Well, that's what we said we would do, which we didn't in the beginning. In the beginning, we built really great things because we had time. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have any customers or employees, so it was, it was possible to do that. Um, but, and we found out that out of the things we built, some were great, but some were never needed at all. And if we would have just, instead of spending a month on it, if we would have spent two hours on it, we could have got to the same conclusion. Oh, this is not needed at all. And out of the things that were actually successful, we have to rebuild them four or five times. And I think that's what it's like in, uh, in most companies. And so what I'm trying to say, if you want something to be successful, you need to be ready to build it at least four times and, and yeah. fail. We've had a couple of times where you know, we do something for the first time and it succeeds. Um, I can give uh, one practical example. Mm-hmm. Many many companies are our size. They struggle with uh, HR, yeah, uh, or specifically struggle with finding the right person for HR because it's uh, it's an industry that usually doesn't cater to startups, so it's hard to find that profile. Mm-hmm. And well, we were lucky on our first shot. Where? We we got it, our our HR recruitment right the first time. But then many other positions where we're on our, our fourth or fifth, and now now it's right. 
and and that's why we want to encourage uh, mistakes and failure because if if it takes someone five years to do five iterations they will only know if they're good after five years but if yeah. they can do five tries in five weeks and just not get upset when it fails the first four times i think angry birds is a great example of that um, they made 53 games they knew each game was going to be a success. They knew it was going to be the best-selling mobile game ever, and mm. it just wasn't. Now, they ran out of money. They, they ran out of energy. They ran out of everything. But they still decided to make game number 54, even though every single review, mm. if they were lucky enough to get any reviews of every other game, said that this is the worst game I've ever played. <laughs> and, and I think that's... Well, that's a finished example of CISO. Don't stop at game 53. Just do game 54. You'll get it right eventually. There you go. It's got to be 54 times, guys. Whatever you do, it's 54 times you get success. But it's so true, right? It's, it's, uh, it does take so many, so many more, so much more than once or twice. And Nokia, Nokia, I loved it. Like, I think it was probably because I'm from Ukraine and, and it's been so, so popular. It's, it's an, an iconic branch, which. Uh, did such a great job in the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, actually that's Nokia is a is a big reason why our company exists today because of the startup community that it created in in Finland. Mm. A lot of people got got very rich and uh, and left to set up their own initially spin-offs of of mobile stuff like mobile games, for example. Um, and eventually diversified into other technology. And, and some of those technology companies had very good payouts, so now there's a good network of VCs and, and capital available as well. I've seen you speak at TechTO probably about a month, maybe two, two months ago, and you mentioned the difference <clears throat> between Canadian entrepreneurs and Finnish entrepreneurs, mostly in terms of how they, their vision, how they set up goals, how they chase them. So talk a little bit about the differences, differences in what you found. Yeah, at uh, at TechTO, I said a lot of uh, a lot of the, the founders here that I meet, they are not they're not going to be they're they're not aiming to be the number one in in the world or the biggest or the best. And um, my my thought about that is, mm. well, why why do it at all then? I mean, why why keep something small if it can be big? Because you're going to take on all that all that uh, pain anyway. Building a small business is just as hard as building uh, a big business. Mm. And the challenges you're going to face, the work you have to put into it is just as much. So why aim for a small business when with the same amount of effort, same amount of time, mm. you can create something like Uber or Airbnb? Um, but um, but there's one, one other thing, actually, I found out at Collision. I spoke to a lot of other, other founders. Um, one thing that I, I think will become stronger here in the Toronto tech scene um, is the ability to focus. There's so many serial entrepreneurs that constantly keep mixing up ideas and throwing in new ideas rather than noticing that they're sitting on that one thing that they can turn into a billion-dollar business, but they just com constantly mm. keep jumping around from project to project or changing the angle of it without actually saying, okay, I have 11 projects. This is the one I believe in. I'm going to delete the 10 others. But they're, they want to diversify somehow. And, and as a result, maybe none of them become successful. But it's such a great point. Like, it also, how do you find that faith or validation or something that allows you to, you know, to just say, no, I'm not going to focus on other things. And I won't, by the way, have a plan B. I'm just going to do this because for X, Y, Z reason. If, if you have a plan B when you start a company, it's, yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm having a hard time even imagining what that, what that looks like. Like plan B is, I mean, that, that shouldn't be the mindset. Because if you, if you have a comfortable plan B, oh, if this doesn't work, I'll just do this, mm -hmm. then what incentive do you have to try? Your plan B has to be pretty much the worst case scenario. Right. And, uh, and that's 
what it is if you're serious about the business. Because that means that you probably don't have a promising career waiting for you. You probably won't get financing for your next project and you probably won't be able to pay rent the next month. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying that that's a <laughs> prerequisite for success, um, but I, I can see that making plan Bs for, for failure might be, might be a bit counterintuitive. Maybe you should focus on, on making sure your business is a success instead. Right. It's like uh, every, everybody imagines the worst case scenario. They look at when they're driving the car, they instead of looking ahead, they're looking at, uh, at the wall they're about to hit and then they do hit it eventually. Exactly. It's uh, like, let's say you want to marry some, some uh, girl or ask her to marry you. What you should be thinking about is, is this the person I want to spend the rest of my life with? What you shouldn't be thinking about is, which other girls can I ask if she says no? And that's how you should treat your business as well. Is this what you want to spend your life with? If it isn't, then maybe you're in the wrong area of business. I love this analogy. <laughs> Tell me about sharing economy landscape and how does your current company, Hostaway, fit into it? How uh, we fit in? Um, it's a very interesting question, actually. I haven't received that in a, in a couple of years. Um, the sharing economy has, has got uh, a lot of bad publicity. I think it was a it was a massive trend around 2014 2015, very very hyped with Airbnb and Uber, um, and how the future was going to be an Uber for everything. Um, back then, it was seen as a solution to um, to let's say the how the middle class is worse off, and the solution would be that you can just do more jobs, mm. but. But now I think it's uh, the sentiment is a bit more negative. We're talking about automation. Uber is going to have self-driving cars, things like that. Also in Airbnb, there's uh, there's regulation. I I think uh, that the sharing economy has has all the same potential as before. And uh, what we're seeing here is uh, is just uh, that it's maturing. We need proper regulation. Hmm. Uh, we need a consensus on what's what's okay and what's not. We need, um, for example, I saw a protest here in Toronto from Foodora, hmm. food delivery people. Basically, they are, I guess, unionizing, which which to me makes perfect sense. That's sure. how it should be. I mean, yeah. they should people who work. With, with gigs, like uh, mm -hmm. like renting out an apartment or, or driving an Uber or delivering food shouldn't be treated any, any less than anyone else. And I see that as an extremely positive thing. Now, how we fit in, we, we simply provide, uh, we provide software that allows uh, property managers um, to scale up their operations, to yeah. save time and grow their business. And you do that not only for Airbnb, you do it for a lot of other services like Booking.com, uh, for many other... Yeah, HomeAway, Expedia, VRBO, TripAdvisor. And, uh, and it's... Yeah, the competition in that field is, uh, is quite fierce. Um, and it's, it's very global, very big companies. Basically, there's three companies in the world that, uh, that have the entire market. It's uh, Booking Holdings, then it's Expedia with a lot of different brands. Expedia has hotel, Hotels.com. They own mm -hmm. a part of TripAdvisor. They own HomeAway, which owns VRBO. And then it's Airbnb. Um, and those three are, are currently ramping up the battle. And that's basically good for us. Because if there was just one big partner, uh, it would be easier to work with just with them. But Airbnb hasn't succeeded in getting a monopoly or maintaining that monopoly that they had a few years back when they were the only ones providing urban properties. There's this um, myth of uh, entrepreneurs have where they say, look, it's not a good idea to go after a big market. There's a lot of competition. We're going to get killed very quickly. Why is it maybe not quite right to look at, at, that, at the market in this way whenever you're starting a company? Why competition is a good thing? Or is it? I don't know. We, we had a fairly pragmatic approach when we started this. We, we looked at exactly the competitive landscape, the, the growth 
of the industry and and what we saw that there was uh, there was low competition and also low investment um, and and that's what encouraged us to to build this um, if we had seen that there's there's a lot of of big players around with uh, with a lot of uh, market share then unless we had a really brilliant idea and, and probably stronger self-confidence than we had we wouldn't have gone into it in the first place. So I do, I do think it's important uh, to to look at that. But also, if you go into a niche market, you may have a harder time time pivoting. I've I met a lot of a lot of companies. We're basically a CRM for our vacation rentals, mm. but um, but there's a lot of CRMs for a lot of things. Yeah, like uh, just here in Toronto, I know three different companies that are CRMs in in healthcare. I've heard a couple for sure. Yeah, yeah. I think one one provides uh, an online video conferencing platform. One of them is provides the the billing more for uh, chiropractors, mm-hmm. for example. And a third one, I don't even remember, but they have their own niche. Um, and I think it's great if you find your own niche, but if you focus on on that market, it might be harder to to pivot. And we originally didn't even start building a, a CRM for vacation rentals. Um, we started building just a channel mm-hmm. manager. So we right. were in an even smaller market. Okay, I want to talk about switch gears and talk about self-awareness. Uh, you have a lot to say about that topic. I've, uh, I've seen one of your articles. Why is it so important? And how can someone get a little bit more self-aware? Um, Getting self-awareness is very easy. Just um, just start a company and hire a bunch of people. You'll become self-aware very very quickly. If you're if you're lucky, um, it depends on on your level of of humility. Um, I'm I get a lot of feedback as a as a CEO about mm-hmm. things I should or should not do, and I'm very although it it doesn't always feel good. Um, I'm I'm very happy uh, to be in that position, but it's it's not only because we have great people; it's partly because we actually built a good company. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, being self-aware is is a concept that still is quite strange to me. <laughs> it's it's um, because it's it's hard. You gotta you gotta think about. Uh, how you are positioning yourself mm. a bit like I think about my business where do we position ourselves in the market are we are we a Toyota or a Lexus or a Lamborghini um, and and you got to think of yourself that way in a lot of different contexts which can be quite scary and and what might even happen if you're mm. too self-aware is that you you just decide not to say anything at all and see see how things go wrong you uh focused on a lot of areas in your career and, and obviously being an entrepreneur since 11, you did sales, you did marketing, you did operations, product management, a lot of different things. Was there one particular area that you found yourself really captivated by or was it just like a lot of entrepreneurs you're like, well, I actually like them all or I don't have a specific one that that I was more interested going deep? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. There's there's two areas that I I really enjoyed doing, um, that are are quite important. I think for not for all companies, but for certainly for B two B software as a service companies. Uh, one was uh, partnership management, where you basically have to find and sell the idea to other companies that they should work with you. And, and I find the dynamics there, first of all, not a lot of people understand that field. It's, uh, it's not about selling. It's mm-hmm. about creating a partnership. And a partnership is between two companies is very much like, like dating. Anyone can step out at any, any time and, uh, and you only get what you put in. If you never meet the other person, then it's not much of a date, is it? <laughs> yeah, well... Yeah, if you're always busy, too busy to meet, well, then, yeah, it's, Elon uh, you're Musk not tr- going to have a good time. Elon Musk tried it. It didn't really go too well. 
Yeah, yeah, but it's um, it's interesting to see the relationships develop over time because uh, ideally, when you manage partnerships, you wanna you want to try to become a partner with the very same people who do not want to partner with you. So, if you're a small company, you want to partner with big mm. companies. If you're an unknown company, you want to partner with well-known companies. If you're if you're let's say uh, low on cash, you want to partner with companies that give you cash. And the companies that want to give cash, they only give it to companies that have cash, which so you're not a part of. So it's part of that doing the impossible mm. is is building the partnerships. And mm. yeah, I mean, getting a partnership with companies like Expedia, Booking.com, HomeAway, Airbnb, that's that experience is what, uh, what brought us here. What about, mm. uh, what's the second area for you? Uh, product uh, management. Mm. It's... Um, I've never been a developer, well, since I was a teenager, but I'm really fascinated by, by the way um, development works and how to, I, let's say I can speak both languages. I can, I can speak to engineers and they mm -hmm. feel that they understand me. I also feel like I understand them, but I can also speak to the commercial side of business, to sales and, and understand them. And I always see product management as the, the interpreter in between we have two different breeds of people mm -hmm. that talk different language and there's someone in between who needs to translate it and then then get the two-way communication going that's that's a field that's always interested me and i i wish i could spend more time on it uh, here do you see it a close being close in a way to project management that or rather maybe project management is a big part of what product folks do it can be, um, but I would say a good project manager doesn't necessarily become a good product manager. What what you need as a product manager is a you you need to be able to take demands and turn them into something that works. You need to be someone who invents things, and you can be a great product manager if you have a strong project management background. If someone else tells you what to invent. But yeah. what I expect from a product manager is that customers want something that nobody else is selling mm -hmm. and they want it for free. Um, and the developers, they don't understand how to build it because it's impossible to build. It would take 25 years to build. A product manager should be the one who is able to come up with something that's maybe better than mm -hmm. what the customers wanted so that they can actually agree to pay something for it and then start removing things from it so that it can become more feasible to build and then sell the engineers on the idea that this is something really exciting and we're going to do 25 years of development in two weeks and then then get to that all the way to the to the customer and actually have them start paying yeah it is it is really fascinating process yes yes and it's uh yeah, it's it's not easy because the the customer wanted yesterday, and oh, and uh, the engineers uh, if if they say it takes two weeks, it's probably going to take a year, and then even when it comes out, it doesn't work. Like like any first iteration, right? Yes, yes, exactly. So it's uh, it also requires a lot of that that grit to to have the self confidence to say, okay, this one didn't work, but we built it for. I mean, how do you know something doesn't work? You try it. Yeah. Now, most companies, most people who have started a company that I've spoken to, they've never had anyone try their product because they failed before that. They had an idea mm -hmm. and they decided not to quit their day job and that idea didn't turn into anything tangible. Now, if you have someone who tries your product, that's a fantastic place to be. And if it doesn't work, that's even better. Yeah. That means that and if a customer tells you it doesn't work, that's amazing. Yeah. That means that you have a customer who decided to spend his own time, maybe even money, on trying out your product. And he was so interested, so fascinated about that product that he decided to spend even more time by telling you it doesn't work. That is a great first achievement. But you can't stop there. Then you have to see, okay, what would it take to make it work? Can yeah. we make it work? And then... When the product is actually ready, is the customer still interested? Yeah, it's all iteration, all of this, it, like iterating until it actually works. 
let me let me ask you this: What separates a good entrepreneur from a great one? That's a that's a really good uh, good question. I I haven't really seen any any differences. I mean, I I worked for entrepreneurs most of my career. Mm-hmm. I worked for what people would call a fantastic boss and a, and a horrible boss, and what people who are generally unknown in the entrepreneurial community and people are very well known. And I, I don't see any any trends there. I I think someone else has to answer that question. Okay. Uh, Actually, there's, there's one thing, though, that I see that's, that's very interesting and why mentorship is so important. Um, a lot of entrepreneurs, they, they become more, maybe not cynical, more realistic as, as mm. years go by. It's not that they get old and grumpy. No, it's, mm. it's quite the opposite. It's just that whatever they thought was possible, they know now they have a more clear view on the world and they're able to give their opinions in a much stronger way. So something that, that, let's say, someone with a small company, a couple of years' experience, they might be able to answer a question in 15 minutes. And an experienced entrepreneur is someone who has done it so many times, they can give, give just two words and yeah. you have the full answer. It's more pragmatic approach. Yeah. Do you hold any controversial views on anything? Yes, yes, I, I certainly do. Do do you mind do you mind sharing? Um, well, one of them is, um, and um, as a CEO, I get criticized yeah. for this. I'm I'm very much against consumerism. Um, now, on the other hand, people do require me. As you can say, see my shoes here; mm. they have a hole. Now, mm. the yeah. way most people would deal with that, especially CEOs, is they go and buy new shoes. The way I deal with it is, I w- I have one pair of shoes for rainy days. And I wear them if it's raining. The other days, I just hope that it's not raining. Um, okay. And I, I don't have a car. Mm. Um, we have, yeah, moved around the world a lot and tried to keep our amount of stuff really to the minimum. And, um, and yeah, I only buy new... I don't buy new clothes when they have holes in them. I buy them when the functionality goes out. And that, that goes for most things. Most of most of the objects that people spend money on, I don't buy them at all. Which is a good thing in a way that, you know, there are a lot of people who are very much like they all after material things and some of and there's definitely a healthy balance. You're maybe not don't need all of those fancy things and everything to keep you happy, which most of the time we know that they won't, right? You you need probably connect with people and travel. Uh, so th- there's a probably a balance there. Yeah, yeah. Well, when uh, when we, me and my wife, when we graduated from school, we got our first job. We started collecting all the shiny things that everyone else was collecting. And then, I think it was a couple of years later, we found out that we really don't want to live. We don't like our lives right now. Let's move to Amsterdam. And mm-hmm. we moved to Amsterdam. And one of the toughest things we had to do was pack up all this stuff that we, we had and put it in a, in a storage locker uh, thanks, Grandma. It's uh, now, now uh, ten years later, and, yeah. and the stuff is still there. We haven't looked at it once, but it's it's really valuable, and it was very important to us at the time. But we actually felt a sense of relief when we we rented a furnished a couple of furnished apartments, and we we thought, well, this is great. This is not our bed. We did not choose the bed frame. We did not choose. Uh, the towels. We did not choose the forks and knives that mm-hmm. we're using. Yeah, because that doesn't really matter to us. We thought it did. We thought it's the most important thing in life, uh, but it really doesn't. And it's so much nicer to not collect stuff. Yeah, I mean, I I can't agree more. When you feel overwhelmed or unfocused, or have lost maybe your focus temporarily. What do you do? Do you ask maybe certain questions? You go in a room or you journal? Is there any like certain techniques that you use? I I haven't figured out that part yet. They say it's uh, it's lonely at the top, and and for for our employees, they know they always know what to do in those situations. They always have someone to talk to. Yeah. Not not necessarily me, but but they. I hope they feel they know what to do. I don't really have that and and i'm not supposed to i'm the one who's supposed to let's say soak up all the all the pain in the world and then somehow deal with it now when i have a have a bad day 
I I usually go home early. I I remember I for the first two years in this company I worked from home. Mm-hmm. I remember I just sent a message to all my colleagues that hey, I don't feel well today. I'm not going to be productive, so I just won't work. Now being here in an office, I can't really do that uh, because then people see that I leave, mm-hmm. and I don't I don't want to leave. I like. This is actually a great office. <laughs> it is. It is a nice office. Actually, I like your stand-up desk and the setup. It, it is really, really cool. Yeah, yeah. But I, I haven't figured that out yet. Mm-hmm. I have some people that I can go and complain to, but of course, if it's really important, then I can't really complain to anyone. I mean, that's literally my job: is not to complain. <laughs> job of CEO is really hard. What are some of the books that you keep revisiting over the years? There's uh, there's two great great books that I, I love. I'm I'm really into uh, investing, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm I'm also into science or scientific studies. And there's there's two books that are written uh, based on scientific studies, or mm-hmm. basically the book is the outcome. Uh, one of them is called The Millionaire Next Door. Okay. It, it. Uh, yeah. it took 30 years of research. So they, they interviewed over several generations, people in the U.S. who were millionaires, who they are. And, um, and it, was, it was a very interesting read because when people think of, of, uh, of the rich and famous, this book paints a complete opposite picture. Hmm. They are normal people uh, who work in a, in a normal office. They have even smaller houses than than you or me and that's why they have nice things it's like warren buffett's like the 95 exactly house warren buffett is, is a is a perfect example where his dream uh lunch is a big mac yeah like he he has like like i think his wife was like giving him like two dollars 35 cents to stop by uh, on a drive through at mcdonald's which was unreal yeah it's on a good day on a bad day it would be like one dollar 95 cents or something like that yeah, yeah, exactly. No, that's um, it's it's really interesting to read that because then you find out that uh, you know it doesn't actually everyone has has the opportunity or the control. Um, another book that I really enjoy reading is called uh, "From Good to Great." Oh, that's a good one. It's a uh, it's a research um, which, interestingly enough, it didn't have any theories that they wanted to test it was basically going into a black box but what they did was they analyzed um i think 10 different companies on the stock market that you could see were doing equally well as their competitors and equally well as the industry and the overall stock market and then suddenly they had a had a rocket ship launch and um what they found out was that one or two years before that launch they had changed ceos Hmm. And the new CEO did something that caused them to become the biggest company in the industry or, or do 8,000 times better than everyone else. Mm-hmm. And they, they, since they didn't have any, any questions to ask, they started just looking at facts. And, and those facts pointed down that uh, a couple of interesting details. For example, the, mm-hmm. the CEOs of those companies, when things go well, and you ask them why they went well, they tend to say, it's because we were lucky. Hmm. Or they say, it's because we are great people. They, they don't tend to say, well, I had this idea, I put it into action, hmm. and this is the outcome. Right. Even though that's the truth, but they, mm-hmm. they just don't say it. Um, another interesting one that I found was that there was no correlation whatsoever with the compensation model of both employees and executives within the companies. But, but that's a book that's because it's, they didn't have any, any, any thoughts about what the outcomes could be. I like scientific research where you just dig into a, a black hole and see if you find something. It was a research. I, I read it and it was like, they jumped straight into case studies, right? They jumped straight into talking about uh, the very best companies and how they pick them and then uh, what you just talked about. Yeah, yeah. Which was, which was very cool. Before I ask my last question, uh, Marcus, where is everybody could find you online? 
Uh, everyone can find me on uh, LinkedIn. My my tag is Marketing Marcus. I used to be into marketing. Now I'm now I'm into recruiting marketing people. And, and by the way, we will link the books that you just mentioned in the show notes and where everybody can find your line. So just go into show notes, click the link, and it will take you to your profile and to the books on Amazon. Yes, and um, unfortunately, I'm not active on on Twitter. Um, but uh, yeah, our website is hostaway.com. Excellent, and I will do that. What impact would you like to have on the world with what you're doing at Hostaway, or maybe beyond that? The impact that I I want to have on the on the world is showing how hard work can can reward in a way that you can actually create a nice working environment. I think uh, far too many people in this world are too obsessed with um, with their CV or with with money, and and not the things that really matter. Um, for example, uh, one of the main reasons, well, people that left their job and found a new job where they're going to stay, one of the main reasons is that they they like their colleagues. Yes, hundred percent. And uh, I, I find that fascinating because it's so 100% true. And I know that from, from my own experience as well, that, that in the end, salary is, is not a main driver. And, uh, and being able to achieve or influence things can be either good or bad. I can influence everything I want, and sometimes it, it terrifies me. I don't want to influence anything, but, but uh, right. it can be good or bad. But uh, working around nice people that you enjoy working with, where, where you feel that everyone is supporting you and you, you can support them as well, that's, um, that's what we wanted to create with this company, and that's where I feel that we're finally reaching the, the goal here. That will, Well, let's call it the foundation upon which we can build. That's an amazing one. And I, I found from my experience as well that the people you work with, you people you're around, you spend most of your time at work anyways, um, over 40 years through the lifetime are the key thing that will make that happiness, growth, contribution, which are the most important ones. Uh, material things important, but they're probably not as important. Yeah, well, to cite uh, from good to great, the three most important factors are people, people, and people. Marcus, it was an absolute pleasure to have you here on the show. Thanks a lot. And uh, hopefully everything goes well with Hostaway and all the things you're doing right now. Thank you very much. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. This is Marcus Rader, and he is the CEO of Hostaway. If you did, go on Apple Podcasts and leave a review, the six star only, as always. Uh, and I would love to hear from you. And if you are on LinkedIn, you've seen this interview or you've seen my post on LinkedIn, leave a comment. I'd love to hear what you think because there will be a ton more guests coming on the show. I want to hear some of the insights from you, but otherwise I will see you in the next one.